0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Next weekend marks 75 years since the end of the Second World War, which meant the end of the Japanese military occupation in Hong Kong in August 1945. Throughout this month, I'll be looking at different aspects of the war and its impact on Hong Kong, the people who fought here, and the ongoing suffering of the civilians trying to survive during that period. In this week's programme, I'm talking with war historian Tony Bannum. Later in the programme, I'll be returning to an interview Tony and I did in 2009 about the mystery of the unknown soldier, a body that was found under a Mong Kok pumping station alongside a Second World War rusted helmet. But first, the city has recently had a spate of Second World War bomb scares. There are still plenty of bombs around Hong Kong particularly in Victoria Harbour and Wan Chai. And on July the 16th, a £100 bomb was discovered at a construction site near Kai Tak MTR station. In the first half of today's programme, Tony Bannam talks to me about the bombs that fell on Hong Kong and the bombers that dropped them. But first, here's my RTHK colleague Tom Macalindon setting the scene with the South China Morning Post report of this event last month.
1: An unexploded wartime bomb weighing about £100 that could have caused serious damage was diffused by Hong Kong police on Friday. The device, which was found in a construction site near Kai Tak MTR station on Thursday afternoon, forced the evacuation of more than 2,300 people from nearby residences and businesses. Train services resumed at the station after the bomb was safely removed at around 5.30am. If it had exploded, it would have caused serious damage to nearby residences and the nearby MTR station, said Senior Bomb Disposal Officer Alec McWhirter. According to police, the bomb, which was around one metre long, was American and dated from the Second World War. The bomb was badly damaged and was in a dangerous and unstable condition. It could not be removed safely from the location, McWhirter said. The bomb was first identified by workers at a construction site in Yun Street in Kai Tak on Thursday afternoon. Police were then called to the scene. Officers from the bomb squad began handling the device at around 11.50pm on Thursday and defused it on Friday morning. The site where the explosive was found lies in the area of the former Kai Tak International Airport, which served the city from 1925 to 1998. In February, a wartime bomb unearthed at a construction site at a Sikh temple in Happy Valley was diffused, with about 300 worshippers and guests at a nearby hotel evacuated. It weighed 454 kilograms and was 1.3 metres long and 40 centimetres in diameter. In May, a 200-kilogram Japanese armour-piercing shell was discovered at the Jernkwano landfill. About 50 people were evacuated before it was destroyed by police.
2: Kai Tak was used by the Japanese occupying forces as a fighter airfield during World War II, And it was bombed, um, I would say, two or three times at least in 1944 and 1945. So there were bound to have been a large number of bombs scattered around the
0: area. And uh, in terms of the bombs being dropped, so the American pilots would have been doing this towards the end of the Japanese occupation? Uh, Yes, yes. uh, The raids on
2: Hong Kong started quite early in October 1942. But then they built up an intensity and by 1944 and early 1945, the raids were much heavier. And not only two engine bombers like the B 25 were being used, but also the B 24, which carried a much bigger bomb load. And where were these American pilots coming from? Well, initially they were coming down from airfields in China. That's how it all started. Um, but later in the war, of course, the, uh, a lot of the aircraft, the American aircraft in China, Instead of using China, they used Guam and Saipan and Tinian and the northern Mariana Islands to directly attack Japan. And as the war progressed, a larger number of the American attacks on Hong Kong were actually from carrier-based
0: aircraft. Now, some of these American pilots, did they end up getting shot down?
2: Yes, a surprising number. Um, There are a fair number of wrecks of aircraft, not much left now, of course, uh, all over the territory, and several also crashed in the harbour. If I recall correctly, about 50 or so American air crew were killed over Hong Kong during the war and probably another four or five were captured. Some, of course, evaded. I believe six or seven were landed or by parachute somewhere in the Hong Kong area and were found by guerrillas and spirited away before the Japanese could catch them.
0: Yes, I mean, I think some ended up going into China, didn't they, with the British Army Aid Group. and they would Yes, be- some abroad, brought, exactly. Some, some by British Army Aid Group,
2: some by the guerrillas, and some by a combination.
0: And uh, in terms of the ordinance itself, so if they were doing this from 1942 onwards, mm-hmm. come, it, we, it would be correct to think that there's quite a few bombs still out there?
2: Uh, yes. Now, we, we all know, everybody in Hong Kong knows, that recently a lot of bombs have been found, £1,000, £500, in one case for a £2,000 bomb. An ANM-66, if I recall correctly, which is a massive great thing. The only one of its size ever found in Hong Kong, to the best of my knowledge. How many are left? Well, what's happening, of course, is that people are digging down deeper as they build uh, larger and taller buildings with bigger foundations and also, probably most significantly, building into the harbour. When the harbour is reclaimed, so many of those American attacks were on shipping or dock facilities. That's where the majority of the unexploded bombs are going to be.
0: What makes you think about, you know, when they're doing pile driving and things like that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, uh, really. A, and there was an accident not that long ago, maybe 20 years ago, if you recall, where a lighter at sea somewhere ran into a bomb which exploded and injured a crew member. So we shouldn't really laugh because these are nasty no. things. Even yeah. after so many years, well, that, it's still very dangerous.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you don't actually hear when you get people like Alec McWerto, who's been mm-hmm. doing that with the, the Hong Kong police and uh, for for years, and um, you know, and he does it for twelve hours overnight. And I don't yeah. know whether yeah. you know, you know, um, I don't know how technical or how complicated it is, but I have to say that because of his success and his team's success, that I'm actually vaguely complacent about it in the in the idea that I'm not actually expecting. Expecting that bomb to go up.
2: Well, I mean, first of all, they do know what they're doing. The EOD in Hong Kong is—it's very respected, and they've been at it for a, a large number of years. And they're coming across weapons which they've seen many times before. So we can be pretty confident in their abilities. But also, of course, it's not like the the Western Front in France in the in the first First World War, or the Berlin area in the Second World War, where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of unexploded bombs. They are still a lot presumably scattered around the area in Hong Kong, but nothing like the numbers they have in those places.
0: So the, as you say, the American pilots were bombing from 1942 onwards and so right up until the August.
2: Um, oh, that's an interesting question. The, the last raid I can actually recall was probably more like June or July of 45. I think the writing was on the wall. And of course, the, the last air attack in, Hong Kong, in the Hong Kong area was by the British Royal Navy when they intercepted the the suicide boats in Lantau.
0: Oh, tell me a little bit more about that, please.
2: Um, Yes, when Harcourt brought the Liberation Fleet in, um, they were very worried about potential Japanese attacks and mines, so they had minesweepers out the front. But as they approached Hong Kong, they discovered that there were many Japanese suicide boats uh, in Lantau, hidden in caves. And these were the type with a very large explosive charge in the bow and rockets which could be fired off at whoever they were attacking to keep their heads down. And there was a significant risk, but Harcourt had a couple of big aircraft carriers and a standing air patrol, and the Corsairs saw the uh, boats in the water and uh, removed them.
0: Removed the suicide boats?
2: Uh, destroyed them, as far as I know. I mean, I, I don't recall the exact details, but I think mm. two or three tried to attack. Right. And, and not that long ago, one of the rockets from one of those boats actually washed up on, on a beach in Lantau, if I'm not mistaken.
0: And that was still live? That was still live, yes, exactly, and it was dealt, dealt with by EOD as usual. No, that's very interesting. that's the, what is that, the Explosives Ordnance Department? Or?
2: Disposal. Explosive ah, Ordnance Disposal. Okay,
0: right. I uh, know, no. I mean, it's a very interesting sort of theme that, 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 as you say, that there's these bombs that are now, what, 75 years ago, really, and up. So 75 to 78 mm-hmm. years ago. Does that actually make, I mean, I know I'm, I'm asking you <laughs> lots of questions that, <laughs> that veer from your history kind of remit, but does that actually make them more unstable?
2: Yeah, it depends. Um, There are various reasons why ordnance doesn't explode. Sometimes it's a manufacturing issue. Sometimes people actually forgot to put detonators in. But sometimes it was something as simple as icing in a detonator. When an aircraft climbed to height into freezing conditions, a detonator, especially earlier in in the war, a detonator could become ineffective. And of course, when it thaws out, it's effective again. And these bombs are pretty solid things. So the fact that it hasn't exploded for 75 plus years doesn't mean that it won't explode. In the right circumstances, it certainly can. There's a famous story of a British mine from World War I being lost. And by mine, I mean a real dug deep mine under G- uh, German positions with 50,000 pounds of explosive. And it was lost. It wasn't fired in World War One. It was lost and forgotten about. And it was set off by lightning in 1955. So, you know, there is always a potential risk. As I say, nothing like the risks that, that we have in, in Europe or Vietnam or other places that were very heavily bombed.
0: When I think about a bomber, coming from England, when I think about a bomber, I think about the bombers that went out of the UK to largely mm-hmm. bomb Germany. And they were very large. Is that the kind of planes that were coming over Hong Kong?
2: Yes. I- initially, the planes coming over Hong Kong were a bit smaller than that, typically the B-25 Mitchell. These were two-engine aircraft. But by early 1944, uh, perhaps even the end of forty-three, B 24s were flying over. And B 24s, with their cousin, the B 17, were the main American bombers that flew out of the UK to Germany and occupied Europe in World War II. And these are four engined aircraft. And the B 24, actually, if I remember correctly, had the second largest bomb load of any American wartime bomber after the B 29 Superfortress. So they did carry a fair, fairly heavy load.
0: So the sort of constructs of these You'd have had a couple of pilots, um, then you'd have had somebody actually, what, opening a hatch, and that's where the bomb goes out, and then you have a gunner at the back, something like that? Uh,
2: yeah, there, there are more technical terms for everything you
0: just mentioned, essentially, <laughs> yes. I <laughs> don't doubt that. You have a
2: pilot, a navigator, a bomb, bomb aimer, and you have your gunners, um, so a crew of seven or eight would be quite difficult.
0: Yes, yes. And uh, very dangerous work for them, too, in terms of so the Absolutely. Japanese would have had Japanese military here would have had a lot of air, anti-aircraft.
2: Yes, they had anti-aircraft guns uh, strategically located all over the colony. And of course, they had fighter aircraft at Kaitak itself. Um, I don't recall all the, the makes they had, but they certainly had the uh, KI or the Kai 44, which was quite an effective uh, higher altitude fighter, uh, quite good against four engine bombers. So no it was no
0: no, uh, no easy ride for the Americans whatsoever as i say they had a heavy loss of life now, with the bombs that we've been talking about, uh, are the ordnance that didn't explode and, you know, is still mm-hmm. around 75 to 78 years on. But, of course, uh, there would have been those bombs mm-hmm. that did go off. Well, yes, if they were strategic targets like Kai Tak, but was there also heavy civilian loss here from the bombing?
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
0: Particularly
2: in the Wan Chai area and particularly in January 1945, um, You know, it's really hard to calculate... This is something I've been working on for many years, but it's hard to calculate exactly how many civilian lives were lost. But it was in the thousands, and it's very significant damage to property in the Wan Chai area. When they were building the new tunnel in the Causeway Bay area, they found a couple last year as well. So there's definitely a a lot still around, particularly £500 or £1,000.
0: Now, can these bombs move? I mean, in the sense that, um, you know, if they are in the sea, for example, or are they just going to sit on the seabed?
2: You know, um, the, these are big devices, so I think they, where, wherever they landed, they would obviously drill down a considerable distance. So if something falls in, into Earth, uh, you know, a 1,000-pound bomb falls into Earth, it will go down several meters, uh, probably until it hits clay and just sticks there. I don't think they're mobile. It's not like, again, the case uh, in, in the French battlefields of the First World War where the smaller shells are moved by the formation of ice in the winter. Um, in Hong Kong, I think they just sit there in the clay waiting.
0: How much, um, I mean, obviously there's, like yourself, I mean, you've written several books now on various aspects of the the Battle of Hong Kong, the prisoners of war afterwards, the the tragedy of Mm -hmm. the Lisbon Maru in October 1942. So there's, you know, many, many topics. There's also people going around with metal detectors looking for all sorts of Mm -hmm. um, badges, helmets, all of this sort of stuff. But in terms of the bombs and the American pilots, has that been well studied?
2: Uh, I think the, the answer to that is no. Uh, several people have, have worked on research, and the, the name that springs to mind immediately is Ian Quinn. Ian Quinn is a New Zealand ex-cafe uh, pilot. I think I think he's retired now, I'm not 100% sure, who put a lot of work into studying the, this area. I don't believe he's produced a book yet, but I really hope he does, because it is rather a forgotten subject. And to me, it's a fascinating one, because it, it was so big, so many aircraft were involved, and it did so much damage, and it's just been largely forgotten about.
0: Tony Bannham there on the subject of the bombs dropped on Hong Kong during the Second World War. And I continue with Tony in the second half of today's programme with a mystery that is yet to be solved. In 2004, the body of a man was found during some excavation work under a pumping house in Mong Kok. The partial remains of a man were found alongside a Second World War helmet. The identity of the man remains a mystery, but in May 2009, he was given a burial as an unknown soldier at Stanley Military Cemetery. Tony Bannon was brought in by the police to use his records of the defence of Hong Kong in 1941 to try and work out who this man was. Tony calculated the man could be a Canadian soldier called John Gray, but the DNA didn't match. He hopes we'll find out in the future. This is an interview we did a few days after the burial in May 2009.
3: I was actually on holiday in the UK, it was uh, August 2004, and the Cowling police sent me an email uh, with a photograph of what they had found, and simply asking me could I identify the helmet as being either British or Japanese. And of course, being me and having studied every death during the period, I uh, told them A it was a British style helmet, and B that the owner of that helmet was probably uh, Private John Gray with the Winnipeg Grenadiers. So that's how it started.
0: It would have been a British style.
3: Definitely a British style helmet. The, the two styles are very, very different. So I told them it was a British style helmet, and then told them who was who probably would have been wearing it at the time.
0: And um, why? Well, how could you tell it was British? Is it just a bit more domey or is it? I know, yeah, so I think I
3: believe domey is a technical term. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is quite different. I've had, handled both. Uh, you know, the, they do turn up from time to time. Uh, the the British style helmet is very noticeable because it has a wide brim to stop shrapnel hitting the neck. In other words, uh, it's not just a dome, it's got a flat bit out here. So if a shrapnel came down, it wouldn't hit the neck. So it's very obviously a British-style helmet.
0: But you reckoned it was John Gray, and um, how did you surmise
3: that? Well, there's two salient points. The most obvious being the fact that the skeleton was found together with a helmet. And traditionally, remains found with a helmet or a weapon are battlefield remains. In other words, if somebody dies as a prisoner of war, you don't somehow go and find a helmet and throw it in the hole. Uh, It it must, pretty much must be, there's there's really only two possibilities. It's somebody who was killed in action at that point and then swiftly buried, or just by chance somebody has thrown a helmet into the same hole as the grave, which is not terribly likely. Mm. So, I mean, there's no certainty in any of this, but the best bet was that it was, that meant it was a battlefield burial. And the other point, of course, was that if you look at where it was found, there would be relatively few possibilities. There was no battle around that area, and the number of bodies that disappeared Kowloon-side during the fighting were quite small, except on Golden Hill and the Mun Redoubt area. And we're talking miles away from that. So it was pretty obviously only going to be one of about five or six possibilities, assuming of course that the death was documented. How Uh, many
0: MIAs were there?
3: In total a lot, hundreds. But over in Kow- Kowloon, before the battle moved to Hong Kong Island, only half a dozen.
0: And out of those MIAs, how many are still MIAs?
3: All. So there's still
0: hundreds of bodies
3: out there? Oh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, Kowloon side, all, all those five are still MIAs. Uh, five, Hon- okay. Yeah, okay. Hong-, Hong Kong side, there are several hundred. But that doesn't mean there's several hundred bodies out there, because if you go to the cemeteries here, there are several hundred graves which say known unto God. And one thing I've never done that often meant to is actually look at the two numbers and see, see how many MIA, how many unknown graves do we have, what's the, the delta? Because there are probably tens of bodies left rather than hundreds, I would think.
0: But originally there would have been several hundred
3: um, at the end of the war. It depends what you mean by the end of the war. In 1945, yes, but between forty-five and forty-seven, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, or the Imperial War Graves Commission as it was then, sent a team to Hong Kong to sort it all out and they interviewed lots of people, they made maps of all the original burial sites and they went out and they retrieved the vast majority of bodies even though they couldn't identify all of them.
0: Winnipeg Grenadiers, how would you have been able to um, whittle it down to that? Were they in that area? That You're saying it wasn't a particular conflict area?
3: No, uh, the Winnipeg Grenadiers, D Company of, were sent to Kowloon quite late uh, they they were sent to plug a perceived gap in the line. They were just about in position when they got the order to go back to the island. Uh, As they fell back through the island, um, a couple of them got separated from the rest of the force. The rest of the force were evacuated together. And uh, these two men who were separated were picked up by a uh, Lieutenant Forsyth of the Punjabis. And he put them to work in uh, stopping the Japanese advance or, in fact, in fact, stopping any advance, Japanese or looters or whatever, uh, to the Choi Star Ferry Terminal. So what, one of the guys had a Tommy, Tommy gun, uh, the other one had a rifle, uh, and they were teamed up with another volunteer who happened to fall into that patch. And they helped hold the perimeter around the Star Ferry while people were evacuating. Uh, when Forsyth declared that it was time to go back to the island, uh, him and his men got on the last ferry and by that time, Forsyth had this Tommy gun, and he didn't realise that one of the Canadians was missing. So he had with him the other Canadian uh, and had lost this uh, John Gray.
0: So, John Gray was what rank private?
3: Private. private? Yeah.
0: And mm. so, he, coming from the Winnipeg Grenadiers, he would have literally been a young man who was here shipped in sort of several weeks earlier.
3: Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah. So, so he had no experience, he wouldn't have known where he was. Uh, there, there's no way he could have learned his way around in the time they had available. And uh, he literally disappeared. And people have speculated ever since what happened to him. There are rumors that somebody saw him tied up at one point. Uh, There are rumors he might have been set upon by looters. And nobody really knows. The place where you would have expected to find John Gray's body, and where it may one day turn up, because who knows, would be slightly closer to Star Ferry. But looking on a map and looking at where the other people who disappeared were temporarily buried, or where we thought they died, the nearest of all those people to where this body was found would have been John Gray.
0: When you said that you were contacted by Kowloon police, so that's... Oh,
3: the one in Argyle Street.
0: So you were contacted by them and then they sort of said to you, what, well, we reckon this is a World War II body or... Yeah. Okay, and, that, and then it went to the coroner or they had... Well, a...
3: well, I, well what happened next from my point of view was um, I told them who I thought it was and then when I got back from holiday they were kind enough to invite me to visit the scene which we did with a search cadre, with the metal detectors. Because I'd already spoken to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and they quite rightly said that they would not bury somebody under a name unless there was pretty conclusive evidence that that was really who it was. So we were hoping for regimental insignia, Canadian coins, uh, a wedding ring, you know, anything that would give a, a personal touch. And as it turned out we found a and one piece of what might have been shrapnel and that was it. So uh, nothing conclusive at all.
0: Now in your, just as a side issue, uh, when you've gone along Wong Nai Chung Gap and various other battlefield sites in Hong Kong, you've had quite a success rate in finding old bullets and things like that.
3: Yeah, an awful lot does turn up. The the majority of course is literally old bullets and old cartridges, which the bullets came out of, lots of shrapnel, um, lots of bits and pieces, and occasionally something more personal like a shoulder flash or a helmet or a button or something of that nature.
0: Now, how come our John Doe was discovered?
3: Uh, Workmen were digging under an old pumping house. I think they were replacing the floor. And they found the body right there, under the floor of the original pumping house, which is a bit strange, a bit of an odd location. As I say, unexpected, and didn't perfectly fit any of the possibilities, but the nearest from known records with John Gray.
0: So, after the couldn't find any kind of identifying, I mean no dog tags, no currency, no um, mm-hmm. re- wedding ring or any, anything. He then sort
3: of remained in limbo. He remained in limbo. He was stored somewhere, in some mortuary somewhere, poor chap. Por- por- yep. uh, meanwhile I wrote for the police say a report of my my logic uh, of uh, you know, who it might have been and why I thought John Gray was most likely and uh, two things that happened. First of all the remains were sent off for DNA analysis uh, in Canada, or at least via Canada. I'm not sure where the final analysis was done. And secondly, the helmet was sent off for analysis. The The first report we got back was about the helmet. And very interestingly, it was not a Canadian helmet. Believe it or not, there, there are experts in everything, and some experts in helmets had identified this helmet as being one made specifically for the Hong Kong government as a bulk order for all the the local auxiliary forces, ARP wardens, that sort of thing, probably Hong Kong Volunteers, probably Hong Kong Document Defence Corps, but, but it was a specific helmet made for a specific order and not for the Canadians. Now, of course, uh, everybody knows that in times of battle, uh, you can lose your helmet, you pick up another helmet. That doesn't mean a, a great deal, but it was an interesting point because I'd rather expected it to have been a Canadian helmet. Uh, so, so I went back to my records at that point, saying, you know, is there going to be somebody who fits better knowing that it may now have been a local person but uh, no, the answer was still the same.
0: So it's likely to have been a a British person?
3: Um, I never saw the DNA analysis. Uh, I believe from the DNA analysis they can say whether it's likely to be a Caucasian or uh, Chinese or some other, Uh, but I I never saw the final result. I was given to believe it was a Caucasian, but uh, that may not be correct.
0: I mean, it's amazing what they can do with DNA these days, you know, hair sample, But uh, was there a full
2: skeleton
3: there? No. no. Unfortunately, the the soil around there is pretty bad. um, What, acidic? Very acidic. The the bones had largely gone. I would say there was uh, maybe a quarter of a skeleton left in total. But one part of the lower jaw with a molar had survived. And I believe it was the molar that they used to extract the the DNA they tested. Uh, Teeth are pretty good. I think the enamel um, protects the core quite well. So even in that very poor soil... Uh, finally they had enough. I was told, and again I'm no expert in this, I was told that the initial analysis, they could not recreate the DNA, but uh, when a, a more modern technique, probably a post 9-11 technique was employed, um, they were able to isolate it.
0: So, we now have this man who we possibly never will know who he is. Do you still hold our hope you'll ever find out who
3: he is? Oh, absolutely. Um, you've probably been reading about the from L, uh investigation at the moment. 1916 big battle western front france a uh, lot of british and australians killed germans buried them all very properly uh, in, in proper graves maps lost because of the war changing rediscovered 18 months ago all 300 to 400 bodies are now being exhumed and dna tested to try they're opening they're building the first graveyard on the western front for 50 years and they're hoping to name as many as possible so dna testing has improved a great deal and as i say to the best of my knowledge they did extract dna from this body but they were unable to match it to John Gray's family. Now, if it's not John Gray, again, there's only a limited number of people that could be, and you have to wonder if people are spending millions and millions of pounds in investigating these four hundred or so bodies in France. Uh, it might be worth following up the other four or five possibilities it could be in Hong Kong.
0: These days, I mean, if you, I mean 1916, my goodness, that's um, you know 90 years ago, 92 years ago, in fact. Oh, so even. Yeah, so it's quite an exercise, which does give us hope for the Second World War because it's a. You know, we're between 60 and 70 years now. But um, in terms of the usefulness of it, I suppose it, it brings, um, you know, perhaps a bit of clarity to the families.
3: Uh, well, they're a bit different because, you know, 90 years and 60 years, it makes a huge difference. Uh, 90 years, the chance of any anybody who knew that person still being around, zero, pretty much. Uh, 70 years, 60 years, uh, John Gray's sister is still alive. If not two sisters, I'm not quite sure. If not two sisters, and a brother. I so it but would bring a bit of closure for them? Absolutely. He, he disappeared. He was the first Canadian infantryman to disappear in World War Two. In fact, he was almost certainly the first Canadian infantryman to be killed in World War Two. So not an ins- insignificant person by any means, as well as the importance of his own family.
0: In terms of the idea of having a funeral to the unknown soldier, what do you personally feel about that?
3: Uh, well, I see both sides of it. You can't keep a body in a morgue or a set of bones in a morgue forever. Um, you do need to, at some point, uh, go, go through the, the formalities. Uh, I do wonder if perhaps a bit more effort should be put into looking at who it may have been. Always, of course, it's better to have uh, remains buried under the, the name, if possible.
0: Just going back to John Gray, He, you said his sister is still alive. He was a private. How old? Eighteen, twenty.
3: I think 19 so very um, young very young very young yes i have a photograph somewhere um i might even have his de- date of birth but yes a very young boy yeah, wouldn't have been very experienced
0: my thanks to tony banham talking there on the unknown soldier and the bombs dropped here during the second world war if you'd like to read more on the defense of hong kong in december 1941 then i recommend tony's book not the slightest chance He also has three other titles concerning the war and imprisonment here. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.